Psalm 121. As we continue in our, uh, our new study through the Psalms of Ascent, we're going to be looking at this second Psalm today, 121, another one of the Songs of Ascent, and I was reminded, I hope you caught it, as we were going through Deuteronomy, the Lord told Moses to write a song and to teach it to his people. He said, it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. Uh, what a blessing we have and a joy we have to come to God's Word, which very often teaches us deep truths in the form of song and prayer. And that's what we're finding together as we walk through the songs of ascent. They are songs, they are prayers, they are poetry, uh, which give voice to glorious truths about God and the way that He cares for His people. As we turn now to hear this word together, I want to ask you, as I did last week, to please join me. Let's stand together as we give attention to the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Before we read this word, please join me again in prayer. O oh, gracious Lord, we come to you, empty and in need of the filling of your spirit. We thank you that by your spirit you have made us your people, and we pray that by your spirit you would keep us walking with you. Help us now, O oh Lord, as we hear your word to receive it for the truth that it is, that you may hide it in our hearts that we may not sin against you. Keep us looking not only to this word, but to the living word, who came and gave himself for us, that we should be a redeemed people, holy unto the Lord. Cause us, O Lord, to rejoice in who you are, for your redeemed people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Psalm 121, a song of ascent. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. You may be seated. Perhaps like many of you, I was raised in a family that uh, occasionally took time to commit our car rides to the Lord in prayer. Normally only long car rides, not if we were uh, going to the grocery store. And I don't know if that says something about the faith of our family, if we only... Uh, prayed or, or thought about the long ones, but we did that. Before a long trip, we'd gather uh, hand in hand, and we'd, we'd ask the Lord to watch over us and over our family, to lead us, to deliver us safely. If someone came to visit our home, we would normally gather together with them before they set off uh, to go back to where they were going. It's really one of the warmer memories of my childhood. It's one of those small ways that my parents instilled in me the idea, the sense that God is actually involved in the details of our lives, not just the stuff on the top level, but down on the bottom level, this idea that as we went in the world, we were in need, and we were in need of a God who would watch our going out and our coming in. We are in need of the Lord who would establish our steps, who would establish our timing belts and our water pumps. And having been... Uh, stranded uh, by the side of a road, waiting uh, for tow trucks and dealing with timing belts, you know, uh, as I do, that there's something about traveling that reminds us 
how often we are in need in the world. There is there's a sort of untetheredness uh, about being out on some lonely stretch of highway and you may be miles away from anything familiar and that kind of setting makes, makes most normal, sensible people aware or, or at least cognizant all over again of the many ways that things can go wrong all of a sudden. As we continue our study of the Psalms of Ascent today, we come to what has for a very long time been known as a traveler's psalm. It's about going out and it's about coming in. And last time, last week, if you were with us, uh, we saw the psalmist away in a foreign land and he was longing for home among the tents of Kedar. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come and even in the opening verses, we'll hear footfall within the gates of Jerusalem. But in Psalm 121, we're somewhere between those two. Somewhere between the foreign fields and the Mount Zion. Somewhere now we're, we're, we're in the untethered paths that meander through the hill country of Judah that, me, that lead up to the mountain of God. And perhaps on this journey, perhaps in this landscape, the psalmist begins to meditate on what blessing it is to travel under God's protection. Because he knows how you know how easily things can go wrong between our first longing for heaven and our arrival at the gates of Zion. Another writer told us that there in this journey is death and life to walk through. There are angels and there are rulers. There are things present. There are things to come. There are powers and there are heights and there are depths. And there are all these things and all of creation. And what if they should conspire against us? And how can we be sure, once we've begun our journey with the Lord, how can we be sure that we'll make it safely to our destination? The answer to that question is found in the doctrine of God's protection of his people. It's found in the message of this psalm that the Lord will keep his people safe from all evil. And that means a few things for us. It means first that our help must come from our creator. This is the first thing we need to know about spiritual safety on our Christian journey. It is that our security in this life, our spiritual security, is not found in anything that the world can offer us, but nor is it in danger from anything that the world can do to us. Verse 1, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? Now the, the translators of our modern versions actually get this verse correct, which is why it shows up as a question and not a bald statement. Slight difference there. But the idea is that the psalmist is looking up to the hills around him. And he doesn't see them as a source of help. Rather, these hills are a reminder that he needs a help far greater than this world can supply. Now, it could be that in the mind of the Hebrew, the hills uh, themselves uh, embodied a sort of threat against his travel, a threat against him coming to his destination safely. And the people that we call thugs today were once known uh, as highwaymen. I'll tell you where they waited and what they did. They were the robbers, the bandits who ambushed travelers and left them for dead by the side of the road. And you remember that parable of Jesus, the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he went down what has come to be known as the bloody way. It was a mountain path with, with rocky outcrops where the thieves would wait for their victims as they rounded a corner unaware. And so perhaps the mountains represented a sort of gauntlet, a a passage through human malice or, or, or violence or, or enemies or whatever it might be. Perhaps the mountains themselves uh, are, are a kind of threat. 
maybe the landscape itself is threatening. Hills mean, mean climbing and exertion. They mean occasional twisted ankles. And as our psalmist travels, he needs safety to sustain him. And where will he find it? And then again, maybe the hills represent the false protectors that are all around us that, that would try to tempt us to trust in them rather than the Lord who gives us help. High places, you realize, in the ancient world, high places were sacred space. They were up there, close to the heavens and close to the, close to the demons and the demigods who had a sort of a sleepy-eyed interest in the affairs of men. And so even in Israel, even as the Lord predicted as we read in Deuteronomy today, what would happen when Israel goes into the promised land that the Lord has given them? Well, they'll go up to the mountains, won't they? They'll play the whore under every green tree and on the top of every mountain. That's what Jeremiah says. The prophets rail against faithless Israel who go up to the high places. They go up seeking security in all the wrong places, looking for security and safety in amulets and incantations, seeking out ritual sacrifices, seeking out the protection of having done something to deserve help from gods who can be puppeted so long as you know how to pull the right string. In fact, the Israelites got so used to worshiping that way on the high places, they began to treat Yahweh in that way. Maybe if I pull this string, maybe if I give that sacrifice, maybe if I do that thing, that's where my security is. And this temptation to false gods began to muddy even the water that fed the springs of true worship in Israel. You know, our idols take a different shape, but they still offer the same false security. You can make it comfortably through the world as long as you get a degree from that program. As long as your kids have a good job, they'll be okay. As long as they get into the right school. You can live a godly life as long as your candidate wins the midterm, but if that other guy gets in, well, it's all off. Who knows? You deserve, actually, to be free of anxiety and depression so long as you have tithed your income to foreign missions. And sanctification would be easy as long as you had his kids. If you were married to to her husband. And that's the temptation we face. It's this false promise of finding security in, in circumstances that we can predict or in people that we can trust or things that we can achieve for ourselves. And it becomes this attempt either to overcome life's struggles by our own initiative or to trust worldly strongholds for our security. 17 years ago, the granite face of the old man of the mountains slid off the side of the White Mountains in New Hampshire and into the valley below. Forty years ago, this May, an eruption in Washington State turned Mount St. Helens into a standing crater. Now the problem with trusting in the hills and the mountains is at the very best, even the hills are temporary. At worst, they're disastrous. And so this psalm is teaching us that if in the middle of our, our difficulties and our pains in this life, if our eyes only ever look up to the hills, and it doesn't matter if we're looking for risk assessment or a way home, if our eyes only ever make it up to the level of the hills on the horizon, then we have not looked far enough. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Creator, says the psalmist. 
There is a God who's not subject to time and erosion. There's, God, there's a God who's not subject to turned ankles, to marauding villains. There is a God who gives help to his people. There's a God in whom his children can trust. He is the God who spoke existence into existence. He is the God who raised the mountains out of the depths. He is the God who formed the earth and the dry land. He placed the boundaries on the seas and said, this far can you go and no farther. He's the God who filled the starry skies with all of those uncountable galaxies that we're still discovering every day. There is a creator, says the psalmist, and he's the one who helps his people. He's a God who can't be manipulated. He can't be fooled. He can't be genuinely, gently persuaded. And he's the God who helps his people. This is the first thing the psalm wants you to know. That our help must come from our creator if it's going to come from anywhere. But then the rest of the psalm begins to fill it out with a common theme. And it's this theme of, of the Lord keeping his people safe from all evil. You see it there beginning in verse 3, but it shows up really in verse 5. The Lord is your keeper, the bare statement. That's the theme of the rest of the psalm. Beginning in verse 3, you notice that the language changes. Verses 1 and 2, this is what the psalmist believes about himself, but now he's speaking to you. He's talking about your, and it's singular, by the way. It's not a corporate psalm. It's as though he's reaching out and he's pointing to each individual and he's saying, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your keeper. And he wants you to know this, that the Lord keeps his people safe from all evil. An idea of God being our keeper, that's the key word. It means guardian, it means protector, it means the one who, who watches over and guides and protects and leads his people. And as we go through the psalm, there are several characteristics, these three things that we need to see about what it means for God to be our keeper. First, in verses 3 and 4, we see that our keeper is always awake. He's always awake. He will not let your foot be moved, he says. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. At Christmas time, we like to sing that song about the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. And that slumber really captures what a miracle the incarnation was. You realize, of course, that sleep was a function of the Son's incarnation, his enfleshment. The living word, the one through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that has been made, came into creation and he took on human flesh and he became a child with a curfew and a nap time. And it's a miracle, it's unexpected, because of course God in his essence, the triune God who sits above the circle of the earth, the God to whom the nations are accounted as dust and the people like grasshoppers, God in his essence has no need for sleep. He doesn't get tired or weary. He does not wear out. He does not lay his head on a pillow and say, oh, I could really use a little afternoon nap. It was in the 90s today. It was so humid. It just makes me want to lay back and take a rest. God has no need for sleep. He never slumbers. He's always awake. And how different our Lord is than all the false gods. You go into those restaurants and you see those idols there, don't you? And they've got their little pieces of fruit cut and they've got their strawberry Fanta and little straws sticking out because the God they believe in gets parched and he gets sleepy and he gets tired. 
but our keeper is always awake. How different from the gods that were worshipped upon the mountain. How different from Baal Hadad, whose priests met with Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel, and, and, and Elijah ridiculed them. Talk a little louder. Maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe it's worse than that, and it's insulting what he said to those priests. But actually, in their worldview, it made sense. Because according to the priests of Baal Hadad, their God was, was like you and me. In fact, he was probably a little bit more rowdy than you and me. He was a God who liked to carouse and drink late into the night, and he would spend long stretches of the following day sleeping it off. So who knows? Maybe he was sleeping. Maybe he had a headache. Maybe he needed a Tylenol. Maybe his people weren't loud enough. Maybe they weren't important enough. Maybe they weren't interesting enough to keep his attention, but not the God of Scripture. Not the Lord of creation. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Our brothers and sisters in a different Christian tradition used to talk about this uh, as the doctrine of God's watch care. That's a beautiful term. That he cares for us by watching us. He watches us in order to care for us. It's the idea that, that God is always leading. He always has his eye on his people. Of course, the doctrine of providence by any other name would still smell as sweet, and that's exactly what it is. This idea that God always cares for his people. In the context of this psalm, it means that God will not, not let your foot be moved. It means that when you journey with him, when you go with him, when you walk with him, he plants your steps exactly where they need to be. So that means that those unfulfilled plans that you had for yourself, It means that coworker who, who actually seems to get a rise out of snubbing you in public situations. Those things are not unexpected. They haven't slept in, they haven't crept in under God's radar and under his watch. He hasn't missed them as they came against you. It means that those sleepless nights that you can't get rid of. It even means that that bout of loneliness that gnaws at your bones. These things haven't somehow slipped through the cracks of God's protection. What are they? Well, they're expressions of God's watch care. His providential care for his people, his protection. Part of his loving hand, part of the master's stroke to refine us, to make us chisel stroke by chisel stroke, more like the image of Christ and holiness and dependence upon the Lord. That's what those things are. Because your keeper never sleeps. He's always awake, says the psalmist. Secondly, our keeper is always close. Verses 5 and 6, our keeper is always close. The Lord your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, verse 6, that's the, the second pair of, of opposites that we found so far in this passage. And that's really how Hebrew poetry tells us the whole of something. It gives us the boundaries, and then it includes everything in between. You notice the way that it happens. The Lord made heaven and earth everything. The Lord will keep you from the sun by day, the moon by night, everything. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in, all of it. It's the whole picture. The, the idea is, in other words, if God is your protector, you are safe from sunrise to sunrise and every hour in between, not the heat of day, not the chill of night. None of these things can be counted as your enemy. 
And if the comprehensiveness of God's care in these verses doesn't impress you, the real marvel in this stanza is how involved the Lord is in the protection of his people. The creator is close. How close? He's closer than the sun that bears down in the sky, closer than the moon, closer than the mountains that loom large in the horizon. Our God is the keeper who is closer than a shadow. How is it that we can be safe from the gaze of the sun in midday, except that the Lord should be the shade on our right hand, right there with us, in every place that we go? Now, this idea of God's closeness, theologians call it his his imminence. That's the fancy word for it, but it's his closeness. And in a sense, this is a doctrine that has implications on one level for all of mankind. It was part of Paul's appeal when he stood among the pagans in Athens. Acts chapter 6, you remember that they surrounded themselves with idol after idol. They prayed and worshipped gods whose names they didn't even know. And Paul stands up and he proclaims to them, Not another idol that they should go and find in some foreign place. He proclaims to them to God, he says, who is actually not far from each one of us. He proclaims to them the God in whom we live and move and have our being. And he says to these pagans, these people, this this glorious Old Testament doctrine of God's intervention in time and space, he tells these pagans, actually, we're all his offspring. There's a closeness here. And so there is an aspect in which God's imminence in the creation that he has made is true, no matter who you are and where you are, but there's another sense in which this doctrine is only good news who know the Savior who has come close in Jesus Christ. John's gospel begins with the declaration that the true light, which enlightens everyone, the light of life, the true light was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Let me give you a negative example of what he's saying there. It's not like this. Ready? Imagine a contractor, and he's building a house. First thing the contractor does is he goes to the building site, and he sees it all leveled, and he sees all of the machinery there, and they're clearing it out, and he calls in the subcontractors, and they gather together all the materials, and he has the people working, and they're putting it up in this magnificent building, and three weeks after it's done, the contractor works in, and he's coming into the house, and the house was made through him. That's not what this is like. Maybe imagine the contractor, except there are no building materials, and there is no machinery, and there is no lot, and there is no anything, actually, There is no existence. There is is nothingness, a nothingness that we cannot fathom that goes beyond our mind's comprehension. He created the world. All things came into being through him. Nothing that was created was created without him. He created it, and he came into it. It's unfathomable. But that's what John says. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Can you believe it? The creator of heavens and earth came near. He entered in. He slept under the same moon you sleep under. He sweated under the same sun you sweat under. He was close enough to see and touch and hear and kill. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came in offering God security. Security for sinners from guilt and shame. 
He came in offering, offering that people should be called the children of God, that we should know what it is to be able to call on our Father any hour of the day or the night, to know that he watches, know that he's awake, know that he's willing to hear and listen. He came in teaching us what it is to look to God's promises in our prayers, teaching us what it is to look to the inheritance laid up for us at his right hand of glory. He came into the world, and the world did not know him. But we do. We've known him. We've been known by him. We've been made his children, and by his grace, we have received the presence of his indwelling spirit. So that we need not fear sun or moon or angels or demons or death or life or height or depth or sin or guilt or shame. Our indwelling keeper is always close to those who trust in Christ. He's always close. He's always awake. And we see in the last few verses our keeper is always keeping that's, that's a pretty obvious way to put it. Uh, I'll grant uh, that. But it's the truth that we can't get away from in these last two verses. You see it come up three times in four lines. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And these are the kinds of promises that only Almighty God can keep. Only the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever, only the one who holds time and eternity in the palm of his hand, only he could write a guarantee over all of your going out and all of your coming in, over all of your life and all of eternity. Only the creator can make such promises. It's a promise that is as expansive as the God that we worship in his covenant care for his people. It's a promise that's stronger than death and hell and all the powers of the evil one to lead us into temptation. We almost get the sense that it's more glorious than we can comprehend. But what we do not do is walk away from these verses saying, I wonder what the psalmist means. It's obvious. The Lord keeps his people safe from all evil. Our keeper is always keeping and he always will be. So the only question that remains is, is it true? Can I believe this? Will God really guard me? Will he guard you? Will he guard you forever? Will it start now? Will it start whenever you walked with him? Or maybe like those granite cliffs in New Hampshire, maybe these promises will erode and slide out from under your feet at exactly the wrong moment. If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you know that that question is a lot easier to answer on a warm summer Sunday, sitting in a nice room in your nice clothes full of nice people. That's when God's promises feel most secure. But you also know, if you have walked with the Lord for any length of time, that it's not here in this room that that question becomes a real issue for us. It's when we leave this room and we go back to our very, very lonely apartment. It's when we turn on the news and we read the headlines. It's when you stand in the mirror for the umpteenth time looking at yourself and wishing that you had your spiritual act together already, wondering, when will it be? 
that I'm a better example, a Christian example to my children, to my wife, to my husband, to my neighbors, to my family. That's when this question becomes an issue for us. That's the time that it's hard to answer this question. Is it really true? Is the God of the gospel still keeping you now? Can you trust him to keep you forevermore? If you ever ask that question, this is exactly why we need this psalm. I want you to notice that this psalm is not presented to us with any sort of argumentation. Do you notice that? If this were an, a, a speech and debate tournament, this psalm would probably be thrown out of the persuasion category. It's not telling us anything new. It's not building from one argument to another. Well, this is true, so that is true, and this other thing is true, and voila, we can believe this new proposition. It's not trying to persuade us or to convince us of something that we as believers don't already know. That's not the point of this psalm. Sometimes God's word does that. Sometimes God reasons together with us about our scarlet sins. Sometimes his Holy Spirit takes us by the hand and leads us from Romans 1 all the way to Romans 11 and says, this is my plan for humanity and for those that I'm redeeming to myself. Sometimes God gives us argumentation and he gives us logic and he leads us by the hand to persuade us of what he's doing in our lives. Other times he simply gives us a word of assurance. Like a drumbeat. He keeps you. He keeps you. He keeps you. That's what this psalm is. It's not meant to persuade you, dear believer, of anything you don't already know. The goal of this psalm is conviction. Experiential confidence that God will keep every promise he's made for his people. Because the Lord knows that in those moments that we struggle with whether this word is true, it really isn't a problem of our brains, it's a problem of our eyes. We face situations where the mountains that threaten our souls seem to fill our horizons, and we can't look past them. We see our sin, and we see our heartache, and we watch our culture careening toward violent Marxist paganism, and it's all we can look at, and it's all we can see, and we get fixated, and we can't see past that mountain, and this psalm isn't telling us Here's something you might want to consider. This psalm is telling us, look up. Don't weary yourself trying to make it around the mountain, trying to see how you'll get through the mountain. Look up to your creator, says this psalm. Look up to the one who called Mount Everest out of nothingness. Look up to the one you already know, thank you very much, the one you've come to believe. Look up to the one who came down, one who came close in Christ Jesus. Look up to the one who proved his promises by the sacrifice of his son. He's the Lord who can keep your life. He's the creator. He's the one who helps his people and he's always awake. And he's always close. And he's always keeping. The Lord keeps his people safe from all evil. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would pound it into our hearts, not just our brains, but into our eyes, that we would look to you, O Lord. And when we are faced with temptations and struggles and obstacles in our spiritual lives, that we would look to you. 
we would cry out, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my keeper. Oh Lord, you are faithful. Help us to believe that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear now God's good word for you, his benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. for something completely different. Um, a few announcements uh, from Ronnie. There are women's things happening. Contact Ronnie. Contact our Kathy. Uh, sign up for Sunday school. Deacon's uh, offering would have been last week. As you're putting your offering in the box on the way out, don't forget the deacon's offering. That's still happening, even though we're not taking special time for it. Uh, no youth group the next two weeks. What are you going to be the next two weeks? Uh, Good. Godspeed. We'll be praying for you. Uh, and one other, uh, just a gentle reminder that as you leave this building, once you get outside, uh, as long as you're observing the other social distancing rules passed down by our local government, there is no mask order. So we don't have to stand outside with our masks on. However, please remember that other people may have varying degrees of comfort uh, with your space and your mask. And so at least let's leave some space around the exit for people to get in and out and not feel as uh, they're, they're being encroached. And if you want to talk without your mask, you do you. But move it away from the building, that's all. Uh, and let's enjoy a little conversation and fellowship together. Good to see you all today and enjoy the rest of your Sunday.